whisper. They look delighted to see you. So, uh, <laughs> so as Kevin mentioned, we've been looking along with, I guess, about 140 other churches in the Richmond area. At these seven questions, and today we're up to the question of, uh, is Jesus really God? And so, uh, one of the things that I, I, I want to note about that right off the bat is, I, I can almost venture to guess, looking into your faces and watching you come into the building this morning, that virtually none of you woke up this morning thinking that the burning thought in your mind this day was, is Jesus God? You didn't, you probably didn't think about it. And uh, probably, you know, because I, I watch you come through the parking lot corralling kids and adjusting clothes and looking at other people's clothes and other people's kids and looking at uh, doing all that. So I, I know that that was not the thing that was first and foremost on your mind. And let me tell you, you know what? That's just fine. That's just fine. Because the fact of the matter is, as I'm going to uh, tell you and make a case for here in just a few minutes, Jesus really is God. Uh, but to think about that and to believe about that is, is not something that you carry around on the forefront of your mind all the time. It's a lot like gravity. You couldn't walk in here, you couldn't be here unless there was gravity, right? It is something that, that, uh, holds, uh, things together and it's, it's something that we, uh, that we recognize, but it's not something that we think a whole lot about. It's true, it's there, it works, and, and we don't give it a lot of thought. It's not unlike, uh, um, uh, other things like that as well. You know, the, the church uh, recognized early on that this was a key issue and spent a lot of time and energy honing exactly what it meant for Jesus to be God. And that's why they wrote the creeds that they did, that it was something that was so key about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and about what the Bible witnessed to about that. That was something that, that, that they spent a lot of time on because honestly, this question of is Jesus God is foundational. It, it, the, the whole, if, if, if he's not, then he's not trustworthy. And if he's not, then his sacrifice didn't count. And if he's not, there's so many other things about the gospel that we might as well throw out, you know, and, and that foundation is something that's super important. The house stands or falls on that. Now, uh, some of you, uh, in, in your, uh, time and, and life as, uh, folks have built houses. And, uh, you had to make decisions about how that house was going to be built. And I would venture to guess that most of you did not spend a lot of time thinking about the foundation. You spent a lot more time thinking about the cabinets. <laughs> right? Because after all, you know, when I walk into your new house, I went, I went and visited somebody this past week who has a new, a new, uh, well, it's not new, but it's new to them, beautiful home. I did not say to them, my, that is an impressive foundation. <laughs> you can't see it, but there's no house without it. And so when you think about this and you un- un- unpack this, this is something that is, uh, is, is essential to our Christian faith. So what, what we're going to do today, and again, there's going to be a lot of Bible in this. And one of, one of the things about, uh, these, uh, these sermons on, on these questions, one of the things, you know, we've departed from the typical way we do it. The way I like to do it 
is I like to take books of the Bible and preach through them. But, you know, because we think that's that's the Presbyterian way, that's the, the Reformed way. Actually, you know, our Puritan forebears didn't do a lot of that. They Some of them did, but a lot of them would take a topic or a thing and read 10 or 15 texts and build a, an argument about what they were talking about. So that's not unlike... Uh, what we're going to be doing uh, here today. We're going to look at, at a number of different texts. And what we're going to explore as we look at this, we're going to look at what Jesus said about himself. We're going to look at what other people said about him. And we're going to look at what Jesus did. And then we're going to answer the question about why uh, your answer to the question of is Jesus really God or not, why that matters, and some very practical implications for that. Now, uh, if you've been around church, you've been around Christians very long at all, particularly if you're a Christian of a certain age like I am, you'll know that C.S. Lewis really uh, had a lot to say about this issue. And, and this was this uh, quote from this book, uh, Mere Christianity, was very formative in my life when I was when I was in college. And um, one of the things I hesitated to use it this week is I went back and looked at it and, re- and reread it because uh, he's very confrontational. Mocking. Now, British people are like that, right? Well, actually, he wasn't British. You know that, right? He was Irish, right? Did you know that? Most people don't know that. He was Irish, but, you know, he taught at a, a British institution. And so, uh, uh, but the fact is, this is his classic quotation about uh, uh, the, the divinity of Christ. And I, as you read it, you know, if you're, if you're on the side of thinking that Jesus really isn't God uh, and that he was just a nice teacher, uh, why don't you go get a cup of coffee? Because he's going to confront in a very sarcastic and direct way uh, your, uh, your unbelief. So uh, I warned you. See, that's... Isn't that what they call that? A, a trigger warning, right? That I, I see, I'm, I'm right in the middle of the culture here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. And that's good. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. And British people love their breakfast, right? So, you know, poached egg is is an essential part of of an English breakfast. I I love, I like them. I like to go to brunch and get a good poached egg here in in Richmond, right? Uh, With some good sauce. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his this his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. So that's one of the things that we have to recognize about this. And one of the first places that you have to begin when you think about whether Jesus was really God or not is the fact that he made those kind of claims himself. And as we'll see as we look at this, that's a big deal because Jesus is a first century observant Jewish person, right? 
And so what do we know about uh, uh, about Old Testament uh, Judaism? What do we know about that religion? Well, that the, the essential core of that religion was that there was one God. And so if there's somebody walking around on the planet who says, I'm God, it's no wonder uh, that many of those people who were there, the other observant Jews at the time would have said, you know what, we need to kill him. He's blaspheming. There's no way. Right. So so Jesus makes that claim about himself as an observant Jew and other observant Jews around him are making that claim. We need to take that seriously. Now, the first one, the, the, the first evidence for this of the things that he said, there are many times where Jesus called himself the son of God. Many times where he, he said uh, things like that that were very clear about him saying that he was uh, uh, that he was divine. But I want to pick one that you probably don't think of very often as that. Um, one of the titles that Jesus used for himself, maybe more than any other, is the title Son of Man. And one of the one of the things that we think about that is and, and one of the things when you read that, you say, well, son of God, son of man. So son of God, that speaks to his divinity. Son of man speaks to his humanity. That's not so. Actually, son of man speaks to his divinity even more so than son of God. In Daniel. Uh, Daniel receives this vision. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Right. In the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. One of the descriptors, one of the descriptions and one of the words that's used to talk about this divine being in the Old Testament is son of man. And so when Jesus says and calls himself uh, son of man in the New Testament, it is a remarkably a confrontational thing. And in fact, he says in Matthew 12, 8, for the son of man, speaking of himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. So he does something there doubly offensive. Not only does he call himself this divine title, the son of man, which would have shocked people. Not only does he say that, but he says, listen, not only am I the son of man spoken of in Daniel, but I am in charge of your religion. The Sabbath that you keep, the Sabbath that marks you off as unique, uh, one of the things that makes you unique from all the rest of the people in the world, all the other religions in the world, I'm the Lord of it. And so anytime uh, a Jewish person would refer to themselves as Lord, uh, it, it's an incredible thing. And not only does he say he's Lord, but he says specifically that he's Lord of the Sabbath. That is a that is a profound claim that only uh, in that culture at that time would only be understood. Only God could say that. Secondly, and there's we have to see what others say about him. And there the whole witness of the New Testament over and over and over again is to the divinity of Jesus Christ. But I I chose this one as one that I think is most profound from James chapter 2, James is writing to the church, and we know that James uh, was one of the earliest uh, uh, epistles uh, written. Uh, the reason why we know that is because he was martyred fairly early on uh, uh, in the life of the church. And so uh, one of the things that James says here in chapter 2 is this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, you may hear that and you may think, what does that have to do with anything about the divinity of Christ? Well, I'll tell you. You know who James was? He's Jesus' brother, half-brother. 
an observant Jew, uh, uh, someone who, who knew Jesus from birth, who says to other observant Jews, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord, only God can be called that, Messiah, not only that, the Lord of glory. That's a pretty strong identification. Now, I want you to think about this with me a little bit more. I have a brother. Uh, I told a really terrible story at the early service, and there are children here that I will not tell. Uh, I won't tell this story again because I don't want to give you any ideas of what to do to your older siblings. Uh, but one time I did, this is not as bad as the story I told at 9 o'clock, is I put a dead bird in his cereal bowl. Yes, in retaliation, of course, for something else he had done, right? Now, uh, he's, he'll be 61 in a couple of weeks. He made it just fine, you know. He's still walking around. He's healthy. I, I texted with him yesterday. He's doing just fine. No, no complaints, but he knows that about me. I know things about him. We grew up together. We knew the same people. We played with the same people. In fact, for a period of time in our lives growing up, we slept in the same bed, in the same room. I know dirt on him. He knows dirt on me. And yet, the brother of Jesus says, he's not just my brother. He's the Lord. Now, that's a pretty remarkable thing. Given that relationship, given not only that relationship, but James's own concern for uh, the purity and the reality of what was delivered to him from the Old Testament. And so when he makes this claim about his brother who grows up, who grew up in his home, that is a, that is a profound thing for us to think about. And that's, that's, that, you know, here's somebody who, who grew up with him, who was with Jesus from the beginning, and who we have the record of in the gospel was not always a believer. In fact, for a period of time, we know that James thought Jesus was crazy. And then after his resurrection, he comes to faith in him. So, so not only do we have the record of what Jesus said numerous times about his divinity, we have what his, what his brother, what other people have said about him. So, next slide. So, but not only that, we have the record in the gospel of what he did. You know, he calmed storms. One of the things to note about that story, one of the things that's profound about that is, is that Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat, a storm comes up, uh, the, the disciples start screaming at him, don't you care about us? We're, we're drowning. And he gets up and he says, hush. And immediately the wind stops blowing and the waves start rolling, stop rolling. Now, one of the things that you, you may think about that, that's not, you know, okay, that's, that's impressive. But one of the things that is so impressive and that got the fishermen's attention, particularly about this miracle was, you know, anybody can tell the wind to stop blowing and it'll stop. That's humor. Uh, Anybody can do that. But even after the wind stops blowing in a storm, the waves keep rolling for a while. They went flat immediately as well. That got their attention. So much so that it says 
they're looking at him and they're like, now they're really afraid because they're like, who's this guy in the boat with us, right? Uh, he heals lots of sick people and he fed thousands from virtually nothing, right? But I want us to read this text because this text uh, um, is probably, at least culturally and in the situation there in the first century, the most profound evidence of Jesus's divinity. Um, we tend to think of Jesus raising the dead as the most profound thing, and that was profound. And it is a pointer to his divinity, as we'll see. But this healing is an even greater evidence of that. And you'll see it in the text. The text says it is. Okay, so as he passed by this, Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Right now, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, a a lot of um, humor and insight into human behavior in this text. Right. You're walking by a blind man and you you see the blind man, not as somebody who's who's needs help, but as. Let's have a theological, theological discussion about the blind man. Uh, the disciples were, yeah, not a lot of compassion there. Who sinned? This man or his parents? He was born blind. He's not deaf. He heard them say this, <laughs> right? Right? So Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Wow, that's a profound statement. Having said these things, he spat on the eyes with the mud. He makes mud, spits, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Uh, I'm using the anglicized version of the ESV this morning. If you think neighbors is misspelled, I uh, thought since we had a long quote from C.S. Lewis, we, we, get in, we get in line with the British people this morning. So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Now, you have to understand, you know, this makes total sense. And this is one of the reasons why I believe this is because people are like, did this really happen? Is that the guy? I knew him. I grew up with him. I went to high school with him. He was blind from birth, right? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. It's me. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Well, of course he didn't know. He was blind the last time he was with Jesus. He doesn't know what Jesus even looks like. Right? He can hear his voice. I don't know where he is. He's around. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, why would they do that? Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. Big, big, big boo-boo, right? Um, And... um, this is a, uh, someday I'll preach a sermon on verse 13 about why tattling is a bad thing. Uh, it makes, it, it, it aligns you with the Pharisees. So, 
Just remember that. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And, he's, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. You can tell he's getting a little frustrated with answering this question, right? He's got a one, one sentence answer now. So leave me alone, right? Uh, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others says, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Which sounds impressive, but it gets even more impressive. And there was a division among them, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, well, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Now, now, one, one of the things, one of the things you have to see about this is, is that, um, this is an, imp- the, the, they can't get over the fact that a guy who was born blind is now able to see. Right? And you're going to see why. And so they asked his parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. They'd lawyered up by this time. And they, uh, so they know, they know how to answer these questions. But, but he, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. Right? He will tell you. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time. Now, why why is this such a big deal? So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, which is so ironic. They don't even know. What they're doing they're you know, they're telling what and, and, and he answers their question. He actually is giving glory to God, Jesus. They so he's giving them what they asked. They're so blind they can't see it themselves. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> you got to love this guy. You know, it's, uh, when, when, we, when we meet him in heaven, I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll have some funny things to tell us, right? And so, And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, that's, that's an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, and this is the key verse, this is what made this so profound for them. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Now, you may think, oh, raising the dead was a bigger thing. Elijah raised the dead. Elisha raised the dead. But you don't find anywhere in the Old Testament where somebody who's born blind receives their sight. And they know this. And so suddenly they're confronted with something beyond their categories that they can't make any sense of. 
this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, certainly that's a profound picture for us of, of something that Jesus did. But also we know that Jesus raised the dead. Now, let's read the text that's in the bulletin uh, uh, about uh, Jesus raising the dead. Jesus has heard that his friend Lazarus is sick and uh, he delays for a few days and he dies. And he comes to Bethany and he meets his friend uh, uh, Mary and Martha, his friends Mary and Martha, the sisters of the man who's dead. And he has them take him out to the cemetery uh, so uh, he can grieve and then raise uh, this man from the dead. So John 11 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, let's see what happens as a result of this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Those tattletales again. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, and if I'm not mistaken, I think in the last year, uh, archaeologically, they discovered Caiaphas's uh, tomb. So uh, evidence that the, there was a Caiaphas who was the high priest. So uh, he said, Not, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, or not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So here's the thing that is so profound about this is. What, what you see going on here is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and you see what happens as a result of that. The, 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 uh, his opponents, his religious opponents, gather together and they decide, you know what, we can't let this go and we've got to do something about this. Why? Because he raised the dead. You wouldn't have to do anything about this if he didn't raise the dead. So I would submit to you a, a window into the human heart is that an evidence uh, for uh, Jesus being uh, God is that they killed him. 
there they are confronted with undisputable eyewitness evidence of this one who heals a blind man and who raises the dead. And as they look at that and they're confronted with that, what the scriptures tell us about our brokenness and our sinfulness and our rebellion is that we will do anything to suppress the truth, even if that means murdering the truth in the flesh as he stands before us. It's really, really a pretty profound look and view into the human heart, right? So that, so that one of the things that you, that you recognize about that is here confronted with this evidence, confronted with what happened here, and because of the threat that he poses to him, they rather than grapple with the fact, is he really God? Let's kill him. Let's kill the flesh. God come in the flesh. Well, let's kill that flesh and no longer have to be accountable or have anything to do with him. And so I think all of these things, none of these things are in, provide absolutely indisputable, airtight evidence for uh, the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is really God. But I would pr- say to you that these things all point to that, and they certainly say to us that the witness of the Bible, the, the apostolic witness, the witness of the apostles, is that this man who walked among them was God. They believed that, uh, and, and it cost them uh, a, a lot. And it was a profound thing for observant Jews in the first century to say that about a man. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, first of all, it matters as far as the atonement is concerned. If Jesus is not God, then, then how is it that his death can count for others? If Jesus is not an infinite person, if he if he's not if if he's if he's not more than a man, then at best what we can say about his sacrifice is that he sets a moral example, that that he shows us a way that we should live, but he doesn't do anything about my sin. He doesn't remove the guilt of my sin. He doesn't deal with the wrath of God against my sin. He doesn't do anything about that at all. But the fact is, if Jesus is God and he is man, then what we can say about the atonement is, is that that event is big enough, that Jesus is big enough, that his atonement is big enough to cover the sins of the whole world. It's sufficient for that, but it's efficient for his own. And so as we look about us and as we recognize the, the reality of this, the, the proclamation, the logic behind the gospel, the logic behind the atonement is that this isn't just a man who was abused and, and, and treated unjustly. This was the God man. This was someone who was both man and God, who was divine. And his death is an infinite death to cover a, a phenomenal amount of sin and rebellion. So you have no atonement. You have no way for your sin to be dealt with if Jesus is not God. All you have is a good moral example. So, so the atonement, 
The fact that we can be forgiven of our sins and not only forgiven of our sins, but have the wrath of God against our sins turned away and that we can receive the righteousness that Jesus earned for us. We have to see and and we have to understand that what the New Testament proclaims about him is the truth that he's God. But secondly, we have to see the nature of his ministry. One of the one of the things that makes Christianity unique, I think, and one of the things that is most helpful to me, and I hope most helpful to you this morning, is this thought. Your God knows what it's like to be lonely. Your God knows what it's like to be tired. Your God knows what it's like to be hungry, to be sad, to be joyful. Your God knows what it's like to be misunderstood and hated and gossiped about, right? And and so one of the things that we see that the witness of this is, is that, and, and one of the profound things about seeing our God coming as, as one among us is that he understands. In fact, the writer uh, to Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, not only do we have a certain and sure way into the very throne room of God, to the throne of grace, pleading the blood of Jesus Christ for us, we have a high priest who is who who is God, who who makes the way for us, who understands, who sympathizes, who can feel the things that we feel. You see, that's something that's profound about that. It's not that just God stands apart from us and shouts at us to do better, that he that he he stands apart from us and says, is that the best you can do? Why can't you do better? Do do more. Come on, get Get with the program. What we actually have is a God who understands what it's like to live uh, as one of us, to be on this planet, and he actually knows what it's like to die. And so as we think about this and as we unpack this, this is one of the rich, profound things about the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only has he made a way to God, not only has he forgiven our sins, not only can we stand righteous before him, not only does he give us the right of adoption as sons, he hears and sees us as someone with sympathetic eyes and ears who is for us, who understands human weakness. And so his mercy comes to us as someone Not who just stands apart, but someone who feels the things and has felt the things that we feel. This matters. Uh, And without this foundation, without this understanding, um, we would have no faith. We would have no atonement. We would have no high priest. We would have no real sense of encouragement. But the great news is, that the witness of the New Testament to us is this man, Jesus, was God. 
and he was God for us and with us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need a sense of this today. Thanks so much uh, for your goodness and your mercy. Thanks so much for your grace and your presence with us. Thanks for this witness, but thanks even more so, Jesus, for taking on flesh, for living among us, uh, for dying and for rising again. And so as we recognize the fact that uh, you had the power over sin and death, Uh, Not only do you have the power over sin and death, but you have a tender heart, a sympathetic ear and eye to the pains and the struggles, to the fears and uh, the difficulties of human beings. We thank you for the certainty of the atonement that your blood uh, purchases for us. And we are grateful today that we have a God who knows what it's like to have a body. And so, Lord, I pray that as the writer to the Hebrews says, that you would give us courage to be bold and approaching and crying out and looking to you um, to be uh, for us and in us and with us. Lord, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As uh, the